0: So good to see you this morning, church family. If you're visiting with us, we're especially uh, grateful to have you. If you are visiting, one of our uh, main mission statements here at Second is that uh, we like to retell the gospel. For one reason or another, we, even as believers, are a people who often forget the good news of the gospel. And so we like to encourage each other by reminding uh, one another and ourselves of the good news. And so I would like to do that this morning uh, by looking at Romans chapter 5 the passage that actually our assurance of pardon verse came from, Romans chapter five, uh, verses six through 11. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context. It's been a while since we've studied uh, Romans. Remember Paul, he is seeking to unite this very diverse church. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. He's seeking to unite them together in their shared commonality of being justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To encourage them to engage in the ministry of Christ Ultimately, he's helping them, as he tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, to bring about an obedience of faith in their life. That is, he's helping them to believe all the more deeply in the gospel of Jesus for themselves and to follow him together faithfully. Now, in order to do this, to accomplish those goals, he gives the most breathtaking and complete summary of the gospel that we have in all of the scriptures He tells us of our great sin problem, the wrath that's before us. But he also ultimately tells us the great news of the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith. That if we place our faith in Jesus, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a gift, not of our own doing, but it's a gift from him. And so he gives us this breathtaking doctrine. But then in chapter 5, he directs his attention towards us specifically, He's not talking about principles anymore. He's taking this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith and he's applying it to us, church. And he's reminding us of all of these breathtaking promises and blessings and benefits that are ours. As those who have faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. An objective peace, no more hostility. We have access with God. The same access that Christ himself enjoys with God the Father. And we have hope. Not a flippant wish, but an assured hope that cannot be shaken of the future glory of God. Breathtaking benefits that you and I have as Christians, brothers and sisters. But the Apostle Paul, being a pastor, knows our hearts. And he knows the questions that we're going to have. And he knows the doubts we're going to have. And so in verses 6-11, he addresses our hearts. And he gives us all the assurance that we could ever possibly need or want to convince our hearts that the hope of the gospel will never, ever put us to shame. So let's read it together. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6. Hear the word of God. For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful uh, for this morning that you've given us the opportunity of coming into your presence together as your family. And what a joy it is to serve you and to hear your word preached and spoken and sung, to worship you together as your family. And so we pray that you'd be so pleased this morning uh, to have your spirit, to use your word in our lives as your people, making us more and more like your son. For our good and your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Way back in 1867, uh, the famous American evangelist D.L. Moody, who at the time was really known as being kind of a hellfire and brimstone preacher, went to England to preach. And there he met a a young man, a very young, excitable convert uh, named Henry Morehouse, probably in his mid-20s at the time. Um, He had just come to Christ. He used to be a drunkard and about five years after uh, he he became a Christian, he he met D.L. Moody, the famous American preacher, and he went to go hear uh, Moody preach. And after the sermon, he went to Moody and said, thank you so much for that sermon. I'm a recent Christian myself. I, I like to preach. My favorite verse in all the Bible is John 3, 16, which is actually kind of like the Romans 5, 8 of the gospels. That's my favorite verse. I love to preach it. I want to come to America and preach to your congregation. Now D.L. Moody just kind of brushed him off with a young man, kept on asking him, kept on pestering him. So he thought to himself, okay, this is a, a young, excitable Christian. Clearly he can't step in my shoes and fill my pulpit, but I don't want to discourage him. So he'll never come into America. I'll let him know that he can, he can do it. I'll, I'll encourage him. So sure, you can come to, uh, to my pulpit. Next time you find yourself in Chicago, Mr. Morehouse, uh, you can preach for me. Never thought anything of it until a couple months later he received a telegram. Said, Mr. Moody, I'm in Chicago and I'm ready to preach from your pulpit. And, and Moody had no idea what he was gonna do. He had no idea about this, this young man's theology, but he didn't wanna be proved a liar either because he promised him. So he went to his deacon's he said, okay, guys, I'm going to be out of town for the next couple of days. I'm going to miss the midweek services. I promised this young Englishman that he could preach for me. Let him step in my pulpit. I'll be back on Sundays. I'll correct anything that he got wrong. All right. So he comes back Saturday night and he remembered that this young man <laughs> preached for him and he asked his wife, okay, how did that young English boy do? And she said, he's a much better preacher than you. And <laughs> he said, what, Why? This is what she said. Because he tells sinners that God actually loves them. Now, he didn't think that was funny. And he got mad. And he said, well, he got the gospel wrong. So he went to go here and preach on Sunday. And this is what he said. After hearing that man preach, I'd never so experienced the power of God. I never knew that God could love me so much. My heart thawed. The tears flowed. I was changed, as was my ministry forever. I love that. I also find it interesting because it's so representative, I think, of how we can often be church. We can come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, even be in ministry and find it almost impossible to believe that the creator of the cosmos, the just and holy God could love sinners like us. He might be able to love other people, but he certainly can't love me. He might love me, but isn't it a love that's, that's a disappointed one, a frustrated love, right? Because it's one thing for God to forgive us of our sins so freely prior to conversion while we we're walking around in darkness. It's a whole nother thing to believe that God could still freely forgive us and be so zealously committed to us in our present failures having known the truth. No relationship is that unconditional. That's not how the world works. So either because of a self-righteous spirit they're still thinking that this relationship with God is transactional or because we have been burned one too many times by those who are supposed to be committed to us in this world. Well, confessionally, we say, oh yes, I believe the gospel, but, but functionally, we live as if that saying goes, if something is too good to be true, then it probably is. And it's with that half-hearted belief, it, it results in what another A pastor has said slumped shoulders coming into the presence of God. Some of us might have spiritually slumped shoulders this morning. Just just no zeal for ministry, a lack of assurance, void of the indescribable joy that is all of ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. All because we have a fear down deep in our bones that the hope of the gospel, well, it's just too good to be true. Brothers and sisters, that is why Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 is in the Bible, where Paul gives us two irrefutable pieces of evidence to convince our hearts that the hope of the gospel will never, ever put us to shame. Two pieces of evidence that we need to be reminded of this morning as we tell each other the good news of the gospel. And the first piece of evidence is this, the proof of God's love. He actually begins this theme of God's love back in verse 5, which wasn't in our readings this morning, but verses 5 through 8, we see the proof of God's love. Now the love I'm talking about here, the love that Paul was talking about here, is not God's benevolent love, that, that goodness and kindness that he shows all of his creation, all of fallen humanity. All of us have breath in our lungs and enjoy God's common grace because of his benevolent love, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about God's covenant love that he has for his church, the same love that he has for his son, the same desire, the same affections that he has for Christ, he has for his people. Paul's talking about the proof of that love. John Stott says for a child to be convinced of his parents' love is indispensable to that child's development. For us to be convinced of our spouse's love or our best friend's love is essential to the health of that marriage or that relationship. But for a believer to be convinced of his father's love, that is everything. It is the key, church, to our freedom. It's the key for our assurance. It's the key for our joy. So the question is, how can we be assured as believers that we are in Our Father's love. Paul says two things. First off, back in verse 5, he says, as believers, we have received the subjective experience of God's love. This is what Paul says for verse 5. I'll read it to you since it's not in your bulletin. He says that we have hope that we know will not disappoint even in suffering or when life circumstances uh, point to the opposite. We know that we have a hope that will not disappoint. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Has been given to us. He's saying, as Christians, God has blessed us with the gift of being able to experience his fatherly love and affection for us. What Paul is doing is he's referring back to the prophetic descriptions in the Old Testament of the new covenant promises of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we know that the Holy Spirit was hovering over us, readying us to receive Christ by faith. And as we receive Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts. As Christians, we have a person living inside of us, and it's the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit, he'll say this in Romans 8 more fully, is to convince our spirit that we are, in fact, children, sons and daughters of the living God, able to call him Abba, Father, convincing us that we're loved beyond measure by God, giving us just four tastes of glory, (laughs) God in his kindness and his goodness and in his, in his special grace and love has given us that gift to experience his love. Now, I know as Presbyterians, those, those words like emotion and ex, you know, experience, those are dirty words for us. I know that. But church, it's a gift. God has given us his spirit so that we might tangibly feel. It's not just platitudes. It's not just principles for us. It's, it's a real, tangible thing. But here's the deal. An experience of God's love by itself alone is not enough to convince our disbelieving hearts. And Paul knows that. And the primary reason is, is, because we're not basking in the radiant glory of God yet. We're still in this broken world. We're still broken vessels who struggle with sin Daily. Feelings come and go. And who's to say if we're we're relying on emotions alone, who's to say that we just didn't invent those emotions to make ourselves feel better? Uh, Emotions alone, feelings alone are of little comfort to those of us who are struggling in the faith, struggling with guilt, struggling with shame, struggling with that little demonic whisper in our ears when we go to bed at nighttime that says the gospel's just too good to be true for you. And so here's this church saying, Paul, we need proof, not subjective proof. We need objective proof to corroborate this, this spirit love that's being shed abroad in our hearts. Where's that proof, Paul? How can we know that our hope will not put us to shame? How can we know that we're in our Father's love? Paul says, here's how you can know, church. Christ died for you. Now, I know as Christians who have been going to this church for a long time, the historical fact of Christ's death on a cross, that's not novel to us. I know that. But remember, it was not novel to that Roman church either. They knew that. That was part of their confession. Yet still Paul knew that they needed to be reminded over and over and over again of that objective reality. In church, we do too. The ultimate objective proof that we're loved beyond measure is the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul gets at in verses six through eight. Just look at verse eight really quick. Paul says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Now, most scholars tell us that that word for show, some other translation used demonstrate, that doesn't really get to the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate here. Uh, The word that really gets to the heart in the meat and potatoes of what Paul is trying to tell us, church, is the word prove. So let's read it that way. God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God proves, church. Now just think about what that means. What does that mean? That means that God who sent his son, who willingly came and died for us, God is purposefully and intentionally confronting the small thoughts that we have about him. Yes, he's providing the means of our salvation, but objectively, he's coming to prove us wrong. He's coming to prove to our hearts that his covenant love does not have an expiration date. We need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. Paul says, I know that you struggle to believe, church. As legitimate believers, I know that you struggle with this. So look at the cross. Because it's there that God proves his love for you. Now, there's a few things that Paul says about the cross. From the cross, we know one thing. First off, 6B, that our salvation is entirely of God. Paul did not say that Jesus came and died at any old time, did he? He did not say that Jesus Christ came and died at some random time. He said that Jesus came and died at the right time. Or as the appointed time that Paul tells us in Galatians. Another way to think about it is due time. In his time. The time that our triune God chose before the foundation of the world. Before any of us were a twinkling in our parents' eyes. He chose his time in order for Christ to provide the means of our salvation. That God might be both the just and the justifier of all those who believe on Christ in faith. The point is... We did not ask Jesus to come and die. He didn't meet us halfway. He wasn't waiting for us to, to muster up the courage or the strength to ask him. He came, church, in his timing. He came at the right time. The point is, let us not be eoring about wondering whether if God loves us, folks. Because listen, the truth is, God's love for us has nothing to do with us. But it has everything to do with God and his grace. God's nature is love. And for some reason, according to the counsel of his will, he chose to set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. And he proves that by coming at the right time. He also shows us that he loves us, proves it by reminding us of the spiritual condition that we were in when he came. He didn't that come when we were strong. He didn't come when we were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to worship him. What did he say? He came when we were ungodly, church. What does it mean to be ungodly? It means that we are very unlike God. One of the most important things about us in our creation, God designing us, was the image of God. That we might know him and be in relationship with him, reflect his glory and his rule in this world. But Paul tells us at the fall, that image became marred and broken. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means is, is that we were without love for God. We did not desire him. We hated him. And we were content with that. We were ungodly. That's when he came. He also came when we were weak. Now, elsewhere, Paul says our weakness as Christians is a good thing, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about our utter powerlessness to do anything about our ungodliness. We were children of wrath, he says in Ephesians 2, and we were content with that. The point is, Paul is saying whatever guilt and shame complexes we have, it does not do it justice to how guilty and shameful we were when Christ came. Now you say, Barton, how is that supposed to make me feel better? Paul, what in the world are you doing? I told you I'm struggling to believe God loves me. You just proved it. Look at verse 7. Just look at this scenario he gives us. You have a righteous person and a good person. The righteous person is someone that is a morally astute person. He, He has done everything correctly. He's a good guy. He's done everything right. But then there's the good person. The difference between the good person and the righteous person is that the good person has done everything that righteous person has done. He's a correct person. He's morally upright, but he's also loving this good person. That means that you know him and he knows you and he's blessed you and he's benefited you and he's good to you. So here's the scenario so that we might understand. Paul says it is a rarity that anybody would take a bullet for that righteous person. I mean, it would be sad to watch that person die. But the truth is, we don't know that person. He has never done anything towards us. And I'm not going to sacrifice my life and my relationships with my loved ones for someone I don't know. Good person, maybe, right? Because I know that good person. He loves me. He's blessed my family. I might die for that person. The point is, is what Paul is saying. When Christ came and died for you and me, we weren't even righteous, It's not like we were a good person or a righteous person. Folks, we were at the bottom of the barrel. We were enemies of God. We hated him and we were content in that. And that is when he came. When we had absolutely nothing to offer. John Stott says the degree of God's love is determined by the cost of the gift. Well, what is the cost? It is the son of God. An infinite price. You take the cost and you compare it with the worthiness of the recipient. Well, how worthy were we? Not very. We were rebels. Friends, the point is, Jesus did not come for the proud. He did not come for the self righteous. He didn't come for those who just needed a little bit of saving. He came from the tired and the weary. He came for the drunkards and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He came for the broken and the beaten. He came for the helpless and the hopeless. He came for the lost. He did not come for good people. He came for sinners who have nothing to offer. That's how much he loves you. Some of you may remember Dr. James Allman. He was a professor at Crichton College right up the road before it changed its name to wherever it is now. And I think he went on to to Dallas. Um, He tells a testimony of how much Romans 5, 8 meant to him. He said before he became a professor, he was a pastor. And he was called to minister the word of God to the people of God. But he found himself in an impossible position. He doubted his own salvation about one year into his ministry. He felt so guilty about that, ashamed, like a hypocrite. I mean, he couldn't really tell anybody either. At least he could not feel like he could tell anybody because he's the pastor. He's supposed to have it all together. And so he struggled he struggled to believe that God could really love someone like him. He, he knew the doctrines. He knew the truth. He knew <laughs> Romans 5 verses 1 through 5. He knew that. But he struggled with that, that whisper in his ear, but James, the gospel is just too good to be true for you. So he slipped into deep spiritual depression, so much so that almost on a nightly basis for about four years, he, he would wake up in cold sweats contemplating suicide. Until he read Romans 5.8. I'm sure he'd read it many times. I mean, he was a pastor and a scholar. But God brought him to Romans 5.8 and he sat under it and just dwelled on it. And this is what he said. I became convinced that God saves man by grace alone. And that his grace does not save by halves. I became convinced that his grace truly is sufficient. That though I personally struggled to see evidences of grace in my life, though I did not feel loved, I did know that I was a sinner. And if God saved sinners, then perhaps he really did save me. I knew in that moment that I was trusting nothing but Christ for salvation, since I could trust nothing in my life. For the first time, it became clear that God truly loves me because I had nothing to offer him. The point is, church, you and I don't contribute a blessed thing to our salvation, not then, not now. It is entirely of God. The communion table is not a potluck. We don't bring anything to the table. We don't bring anything to Christ other than the sin that needs to be forgiven and a humble faith that causes us to throw ourselves onto his mercy lap. That's it. And what's amazing is that God did all of this. He saves us not in order to love us, but He does it because He loves us. And if you ever doubt that, look to the cross. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what's really cool is that Paul's not even done yet, he gets to verses 9 and 10. He says, Christians, I know that you're going to have another doubt. I know that you're going to doubt whether you're going to make it to the end or not. I think that's a doubt that we struggle with sometimes. You know, looking back at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, it's amazing. I'm justified by faith. This is amazing, Paul. I've entered into this this wonderful relationship with the Lord. I have peace with God. I know when I get to heaven, I'm going to enter into your eternal glory. But who's to say that I'm going to get there? Christians throughout the ages, have, I mean, because listen, we know who God is. We know that he's loving and we know he's faithful, but we know us too, and we're, we're faithless people. We're going to blow it. Even as Presbyterians who really value the P in Calvin's tulip, perseverance of the saints, we believe that, we hang our hat on it, but that doesn't mean we don't struggle with that doctrine. Tim Keller did. He confessed recently, or a couple years ago, when he got his cancer diagnosis, the rubber's meeting the road. How do I know? And Paul tells us, he uses gospel logic in verses 9 through 10. That tells us, listen, guys, if God loved you back then, he's going to love you to the end. You can rest assured that you will make it to glory if you have faith in Jesus Christ. He gives us a gospel logic really quickly. fortiori arguments. Arguing from the greater to the lesser, the harder to the easier. In Laban's terms, this is what Paul says. If Jesus stayed on the cross and justified us through his blood while we were enemies. That's the harder part. That's the impossible part. All right? How much more will he keep us saved now that we are friends? How much more now will he keep us saved that we're actually friends with him? The point is, God did not choose us when we're high. Therefore, he's not going to abandon us when we're low. Paul says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not ever, church. That's just reality. If he, if he saved us when we were against him and hated him, do you think he's going to abandon us now that we love him and want to love him more? Of course not, is Paul's argument. But furthermore, he says if Jesus achieved our salvation when he was dead, when he died and he achieved our salvation, that's the harder part, that's the impossible part. This is what Paul says. How much more will he keep us saved now that he's alive? Do you hear the gospel logic there? Brothers and sisters, our Savior is not dead, he is alive. He rose in power and authority and glory and to the right hand of God the Father where now he intercedes on our behalf. The one who holds omnipotent in his hands is praying for you in this moment. What in the world do we have to fear, church? That's Paul's point. Dane Ortland, he writes in his book, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but he says, uh, conversion, a legitimate regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It's not a fresh start. It's not as if God came to die for us and to save us, to put us back up on the horse. Now we have this fear that we're gonna fall off again. That's not what conversion is. He says this, he says, it's the invincibilizing of our future glory. John Stott says for the believer, the future day of judgment is just formality because our justification is that sure. Isn't that amazing? We don't fear death, we don't fear wrath because our justification is that sure. It's signed, sealed and delivered. Christ has saved us, is saving us and will ultimately save us. The God who drew near to us when we were enemies church will not abandon us now that we are his children. The point is there's not one thing in heaven or hell that could ever separate you from the love of God the Father as those who are united to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul spends verses five through 10 convincing our hearts of that for the purposes, verse 11, of our joy. Yes, to unite us together. Yes, to to motivate us into ministry. But ultimately he says in verse 11, for our joy in the Lord. The joy of knowing that we actually have with God we're not enemies with him anymore there's no fear of judgment no fear of wrath everything has been satisfied we have the freedom to love him and to love others even our enemies without fear because everything is secured in Christ the freedom of knowing that we are his kids the joy of that Do you realize as a believer united to Jesus Christ by faith, you're able to enjoy every right and every privilege that is Jesus Christ's right now? The joy of having hope that death is not the end, that one day we will enter into his radiant glory, but not only that, that we ourselves will be transformed into the image of a little Christ. Church, do you you have that joy this morning? Or are your shoulders spiritually slumped over? Look to the cross. And as you meditate on its power and its beauty and its authority, the Holy Spirit will shed abroad in your hearts the unfathomable love of God and increase your joy. The hymn that we sang just a moment ago, The Love of God, my wife loves that hymn. It has a very interesting story. I won't tell you all of it. Um, but the writer of it, back in the early 1900s, he wrote the first two verses after hearing, he's like a, a lemon salesman. He was a businessman. Went to a sermon, heard a sermon about the love of God, just, just overwhelmed. That night wrote the first two verses. But he knew that it was incomplete. He needed a third verse to, to partly do justice to this amazing love of God. And it took him months Eventually, he found an old poem written by an unknown author given to him by his good friend with this note at the end by his friend. He writes, this poem was found etched in a cell wall of a prison 200 years ago. It is not known why he was imprisoned, but it is clear that he was a believer. And he wrote them to to himself to remind him in those dark moments of the immense love of God that his children enjoy whatever the circumstance. And the poem was our third verse of the love of God. Oh, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, every stalk on earth a quill and every man scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole through stretch sky to sky. God loves you with a love beyond our understanding, church. Paul even says in Ephesians, pray that you might understand the dimensions of God's limitless love. We'll never understand it in this life, but this you can know for sure. Whatever your lot, whatever your struggle, you can know that God loves you because Christ died. And what's more, you can know too, that he'll keep you in his love because Christ did not stay dead. He is risen. Praise be to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the gospel of Jesus that does tell us we are more sinful than we ever thought imaginable. But in Jesus Christ, we're more loved than we ever dared to dream. So, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you cause us to to set our eyes on the cross of Christ that we might be convinced of your limitless covenant love for us. That we might live for your glory, for our good and the praise of your name. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen.